the whole twi Musk Twitter thing might might blow up. But what it points to is that we're um, ripe once again uh, to have takeover waves, this time not because of conglomerates, but because of wokeness. This episode of Liberty Curious features Robert Wright, historian and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. His new book, Fearless, Will Massas and America's Forgotten Investor Movement, will be available on August 30th. Robert and I discussed ESGs and how they distort the market by operating as a kind of social credit system for corporations, having them focus not on profit as a primary goal, but on so-called woke objectives. We are witnessing in real time that the countries with the highest ESG scores, like Sri Lanka, Panama, and the Netherlands, are rife with chaos, both social and economic turmoil. Circumstances rapidly change, and at the time of recording, Elon Musk was set to take over Twitter. At this time, we know that he has backpedaled on the deal, citing the massive bot problem, among other things. The exploration of Elon's quest to fix Twitter is still relevant today. So you've been writing a lot lately. You have uh, lots of material coming out. And uh, there was one text in particular which caught my attention, uh, which you titled, A Musk-Inspired Anti-ESG Takeover Wave. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, Elon Musk has uh, made a bid for Twitter and uh, it's gotten a lot of us uh, thinking uh, about what happened in the 1980s and 1990s in the United States when there were a bunch of companies that uh, were not doing as well as they could have been doing. And when you have uh, an asset that's not being fully utilized, people will want to acquire it and put it to its highest valued use. So there were all of these colorful, colorful characters like Carl Icahn and uh, the, the guys at KKR who would buy these uh, corporations with low stock prices and um, sometimes divide them up uh, and, and sell off the pieces. Uh, and sometimes they would improve operations. Um, but the whole idea was to make profits for themselves and for the, for the stockholders. And they were derided as corporate raiders. And there was a famous movie starring Danny DeVito called Other People's Money uh, that I talk about in the, uh, in the piece. Um, but basically, these are, these are the good guys. They're folks who see that there's um, something that could be more valuable uh, if it took a, a different form or was run in a different way. So they acquire that asset and then, uh, and then improve it, uh, create value for, for stockholders. And it looks like that is what Musk is planning on doing with Twitter, which, uh, as you know, has become a platform for uh, censorship uh, in, in the United States and, and throughout, the, throughout the world. They ban people for no reason or no clear reason. Uh, they throttle accounts, uh, meaning that they use their algorithms to make sure that they don't get as many followers as they otherwise would, um, and that they don't get as many retweets and likes and, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, what Twitter has done is to reduce its value as uh, what I call in another, in another um, piece, what is social media as a, as a tavern, uh, uh, 
uh, with unusual acoustics, right, where you can block people easily without having to, to fight them, <laughs> basically, right. or, or change tables or whatnot. Um, so Twitter is, is for whatever reason, has reduced its own its own value, and, and Musk uh, realizes that, and so he's going to uh, purchase it and uh, and and improve it by getting rid of um, you know some of those uh, some of those so-called woke uh, features that it that it currently has. Yeah, actually, one of the things from your text that stuck with me was you talked about how the people who are on the board of Twitter, you know, they receive these lofty salaries, but they're not really, you know, uh, looking out for the interests of the shareholders. That's because they're not shareholders themselves, or at least not very sizable shareholders, which is uh, a major problem problem in, in corporate governance. Uh, so they have more incentive to listen to, um, you know, sort of hysterical fringe Groups than uh, than than the median customer, because the histor historical fringe groups can can make uh, make life um, uh, difficult for them, and they don't really care care what happens to Twitter's stock price because they don't own much of it. It's a very small portion of their uh, of their net worth. So as long as Twitter keeps going and they keep getting their big salaries, they would rather you know uh, pay attention to the loudmouths rather than. Uh, the people who want to, uh, um, you know, to, to improve the, the stock price of Twitter. And so is this kind of how corporations were historically run, or is this something that's been creeping in in the last few decades through things like ESG? Uh, well, there, it's, it's been a, a battle, actually, over centuries, where sometimes stockholders uh, are ascendant and other times management's uh, ascendant. And they fight back, uh, back and forth, basically for, for control. Mm. Uh, so in the 80s and 90s, um, managers were ascendant, or rather, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, managers were ascendant, and they built these large conglomerates. They were called a uh, bunch of disparate businesses, all under one corporate uh, rubric, that didn't make any sense economically. Uh, so uh, that's where the sort of raider came along who would um, take over the company and then break it up into parts because uh, basically they were using valuable parts, uh, valuable subsidiaries to subsidize the other parts of this, this, these behemoths. Um, and the reason why the managers wanted these big corporations was uh, for more power and for bigger salaries because it's much easier to justify a million-dollar salary in a billion-dollar corporation than to justify it in, you know, a mere hundred-million-dollar uh, corporation. So this would be when people who typically are leftists, but you know, some conservatives too. But I think this seems to be something more with progressives um, and more with people who tend to identify as left. Is that they have a big problem with corporate greed? Is that kind of where that comes from? No, no, not at all. I, uh, I mean, people like Larry the Liquidator, uh, they, they were looking to make a buck for themselves and in the process to, to help other uh, stockholders. Uh, managers didn't like it because they prefer not having, you know, their corporations t taken over and, you know, losing their jets and their, their corporate charities where some of them would uh, ensconce their mistresses and high-paying salary <laughs> <laughs> and so forth, right? <laughs> These executive perks. So, so they didn't like it, so they developed um, countermeasures. 
uh, the most infamous of which is called a poison pill, um, which Twitter actually took one. Um, it uh, is a way of um, uh, trying to uh, thwart uh, a hostile takeover, uh, basically by giving a bunch of voting rights to um, to existing uh, share shareholders. Uh, and it didn't work in Twitter's case because Musk was willing to pay so much over the, uh, you know, the market value of Twitter, uh, at least initially. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, so, so some of this might be might be rolled back as we speak because um, Musk is discovering that Twitter has been overstating the number of its users. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, a certain I, president I, has uh, <laughs> you know half of his followers are bots. It turns out. You know, hmm. computer programs, not real people. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that whole thing might, the whole Twi Musk Twitter thing might might blow up. But what it points to is that we're um, ripe once again uh, to have takeover waves, this time not because of conglomerates, but because of wokeness. So it's an exaggeration that, you know, uh, if you go woke, you're going to go broke. Mm -hmm. But... It's not an exaggeration. If you go woke, you're not going to earn as much for stockholders as you would if you paid attention to the to your median customer rather than a fringe uh, a fringe uh, stakeholder. Now, if I understand correctly, that's where the ESGs come in, right? Because they have shifted the focus from being on profits, at least you know, on paper to saying, well, this is kind of like a social credit system now. You have to meet these criteria for environment, social, and governance of your company. And right. not so, just so, focus social, on profit. Social justice, yes. Um, so it's, you know, it's green and it's got the, it's got the social justice in there. The governance one actually, um, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't so bad, except uh, usually the way it's, it's being defined is that uh, corporations that uh, place more weight on stakeholders get a higher score. And stakeholders is code for employees, customers, people in the community, whatever that means. Right. Um, so uh, it's, and I, I like your analogy to a social credit score because that, that is kind of the, the gist of it. It's um, let's uh, the, the government either directly through the SEC or indirectly through the bond rating agencies uh, want to privilege corporations that uh, they feel are environmentally good, are socially helping with good. social justice, socially mm -hmm. good, um, and follow this uh, stakeholder theory of the corporation rather than the stockholder theory espoused by uh, you know, free market um, economists like Milton Friedman. So actually, I would like to talk about Milton Friedman as well, because you named this um, the anti-ESG Friedman Fund as a hypothetical fund. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but but before, before we get to that, um, what I would like to think about here as well is something about stakeholder versus shareholder. Um, this has been kind of a trending word, you know, in the Newspeak lexicon, you have people talking about stakeholder capitalism, and they... Uh, tout this to be this wonderful thing 
which will benefit all kinds of people. And, and I don't think that many people really know exactly what it means. It does, however, make me think of Atlas Shrugged when she's describing this company that's run by its employees and they have to attend all of these board meetings and they have to make all of these decisions and the company quickly just degrades itself and people are very unhappy and then I believe it goes bankrupt. So would you like to speak to that? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, there, there are employee-owned corporations um, like there's a, a, a grocery um, uh, chain in the Midwest, for example, that is owned by its own, its own employees. And of course, many corporations have ESOPs or employee stock ownership plans. So they're at least partially owned by the, um, uh, by, by the employees. But uh, the stakeholder theory is, is is a different is a different idea. It is regardless of whether an employee owns stock or not, they should get something more than the prevailing wage for for what they do. Oh. As should people in the community. As hmm. should people who are uh, you know customers or suppliers to the corporation. And so basically, it's a way of. Um, redistributing wealth away from shareholders to members of these other groups without going through the government, right? They, they want to directly um, make payments of various sorts to these other groups that happen to do some sort of business with, uh, with the corporation. So that's kind of like an idea that might be stemming from socialism or fascism or elements of those. Oh, absolutely! Yes, it's um, it, it it has a, a very long history. In fact, uh, this uh, sort of idea began in the United States as soon as the country was formed, basically in the 1790s. There were banks and other for-profit corporations that were forming, and there were people saying, "Well, uh, for." You know, political reasons, it's hard to get much in taxes out of these groups. They should just share what they're doing with others. So there's this debate uh, that goes on, and the way it's resolved is that we end up with two different types of corporations, for-profit and non-profit. Ah. So if you want to help the community meet some goal, you form a non-profit. And then they focus on that. If you want to help people indirectly while helping yourself by earning a profit, then you form a for-profit or moneyed corporation, as they would have said uh, in the 18th and early 19th um, centuries. And you help people by providing a good or service that they want to purchase, right? <laughs> right. Um, but if you want to do something else, hey, that's, that's super. And we had, and I have a book coming out called Liberty Lost, we had tens of thousands of nonprofit corporations formed in the U.S. before our Civil War. Wow. Yeah. And they, uh, a whole gamut of, of things, not just, uh, not just charities, but everything uh, that tries to, um, or anything that tried to uh, help society or the community in some way 
without earning a profit, would form as a nonprofit. Militia companies for defense, music associations, just so oh. people could listen to music because it's not like they had, you know, CDs back then or MP3s or <laughs> even cassettes or records or anything like that. Music yeah. was live. Um, so there were these nonprofits that, uh, that formed uh, to, to, to help spread sheet music and the ability to, to play uh, musical instruments and, and so on and so forth. There were, um, you know, societies, uh, nonprofits that helped uh, women who had uh, difficult birthing experiences. Uh, I mean, it's difficult today, but back then, you know, many women died. Yeah. Um, but some of those who survived, you know, uh, couldn't um, couldn't take care of the their their children very easily because of the the trauma of childbirth and so on. So charities formed to help those people out. Um, so these were, didn't these were need, kind of you didn't need to get money from the bank to do that, right? right? Or for or from the local um, uh, railroad company or what have you. Right, um, and this just, is this is what I was thinking as well. Is that this sounds like it was more voluntary? Oh, where, it's completely voluntary. Right. Whereas yeah. now it's kind of like they are, uh, you know, putting this pressure on on public companies to do this kind of thing through the ESG. Right. So your ESG score will go up if you donate a lot of money to, you know, certain organizations. Even if that organization is just going to turn around and use the money to buy private homes and sinecures for relatives and uh, yeah. Yeah. So the so the line between the nonprofit and the for-profit is being completely blurred. With stakeholder theory, yes, absolutely. Well, that's interesting because you also look at a lot of nonprofits, big ones, huge ones, the biggest ones in the world, <laughs> and and those those people at the top of those organizations are the richest people in the world. So it, it makes sense that that line is being blurred, kind of on either side. Uh, certainly, yeah, there are international um, NGOs with the uh, you know that are huge and have huge budgets and 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 pay, uh, you know, um, competitive wages for people who have the experience and and the the desire to to guide such large uh, organizations and and they do quite quite well for themselves, um, both We're in terms of formal compensation and also in terms of all the uh, the side compensation perks. that can come. Yes. But where does all their money come from? Uh, well, it depends on the nonprofit. Some of them are almost wholly funded by government these days, mm -hmm. which blurs the line between government and the nonprofit uh, sector for sure. Um, some of them just do a darn good job and they get a lot of uh, voluntary um, donations from individuals. Um, but then there's this whole other group that gets donations primarily from corporations so that they can increase their, uh, their ESG uh, ratings and so forth. Wow. So the, the scary thing about all this is that um, these ESG ratings are not connected to economic reality in any way. So there are plenty of studies coming out now that show that uh, many, you know, supposedly, um, you know, great ESG uh, case studies uh, hurt the environment or they're not doing anything to help women or blacks or Hispanics or the poor mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and or they're, they're, poorly, they're poorly governed.
Uh, they, they don't necessarily score very high on um, surveys of employees in terms of how their, uh, in terms of how their employees perceive that they're being treated and, and, and so on and so forth. So, because uh, a, a lot of these, you know, the ratings are just, um, it's, it's statistics to be gained. So the companies with the high ESG scores are the ones who are best at gaming the statistics, much like American universities. Uh, the highest ranking universities are the ones who could afford to pay to mm -hmm. hire the consultants and the, the staff to game the to game the, um, you know, the, the college rankings uh, most effectively. So Wow. So that's kind of like another social credit system. Yes. Interesting. Yes. So, yeah, actually one thing that I found that was funny was that Tesla uh, was scoring not very well, even though it's environmentally friendly, it's socially friendly, there's tons of people who have great jobs there, and then the governance seems to be going well. <laughs> well, it's 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 not environmentally friendly, and this is, of course, the really big risk in the ESG funds, is that uh, people have made assumptions about what's environmentally friendly and what's not, and when you start to dig into it, I mean, even Michael Moore, you know, the big yes, and lefty, I yeah, and that documentary that he did, Planet of the Humans. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to explain to people on the left that, hey, a lot of the stuff that you think is environmentally helpful is not. It's actually hurtful. Mm -hmm. And elect, you know, electric vehicles like uh, those produced by Tesla are not good for the environment on net because of those batteries and the rare earth metals that are needed to, um, to, to create them. And yeah. then uh, we haven't even really started to tackle the disposal costs of those batteries as their lives start to run out and, uh, and they need to be disposed of. Um, and even, even if some of those problems could be solved and batteries could be made uh, cheaper from more readily available materials and so forth, uh, we'd still have the issue of where does the energy come from? Mm -hmm. I mean, just because you plug, <laughs> plug into yeah. the car doesn't mean that there's not a dirty coal plant someplace that's producing the electricity that's, that's uh, powering the, the vehicle. Right, um, right. A, a lot of the biofuel stuff uh, was very environmentally uh, destructive. Um, for example, a lot of the, the biofuels comes from the destruction of forests. Hmm. <laughs> they cut down a bunch of trees that ha you know that are more valuable as subsidized biofuel than as as timber or as just remaining forest. Wow! And they turn it into into, into fuel. It's yeah, um, yeah it, well, it's, it's not it's, very it's, efficient. It's unsurprising to me. I mean, the whole the whole thing is kind of like this big virtue signal, and it's pretty vacuous. Like there's not really much going on behind what what they're saying that they're doing, which is environmentally friendly and socially friendly and so forth, like quite often it ends up being the opposite. And um, I think that this is kind of very dangerous because regardless of that, you have these companies that are are being pressured to uh, adopt this this new criteria this ESG criteria. And so therefore, like you end up in a place where there's, there's less profits because that's, that's not the focus anymore. And their profits are being quashed by having to balance out all of the other things. Right. Right. Which is not better for anybody. 
that's where the Friedman Fund would come in. Okay, so uh, can you explain that Friedman Fund? Let's talk about this idea. Well, the idea is to make a profit, of course, just like Milton Friedman <laughs> said. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's like a mutual fund or a, or a hedge fund, a, you know, an investment fund where a bunch of people pool their money together. Because uh, Elon does not have enough uh, to buy Twitter and buy Netflix and buy Coca-Cola and, and so on and so forth. He, he can't um, de-wokeify and de-es... All of them. D-E-S-G, <laughs> all of these. And, and but, certainly now that, now that Bitcoin has, has been crashing, he's, yes. he's got even less. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyways, yes. I digress. Go on, please. So he, he um, so, but we could all, especially, you know, us value investors, those who believe in the uh, investment strategies of, of Benjamin Graham and those who are willing to, um, uh, to not follow the Wall Street rule, which is if you see, you know, problems at a company, just sell it mm -hmm. and, and stay away from it. Um, uh, that's not what Musk did at Twitter, right? He, he uh, doubled, tripled, quadrupled uh, down on it and, and bought it because he saw value there. Yes. So uh, the, uh, the Friedman Fund would either short or, or sell, in other words, or profit from the decline um, in companies that um, go woke and help to, you know, to drive their, um, drive their stock price down to discipline them um, and would buy companies that are producing valuable goods and services efficiently, even if it's something bad like an oil company or a natural gas company or what have you. Um, and whenever they see a, an opportunity like Twitter, where there's a, a company whose whose earnings are down because they're, you know, being woke or because, um, uh, you know, they're 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 doing silly things that don't really help the environment, uh, and take them over, and is, run them the way that they should be run. So, is this having to do with the halo effect? Uh, the the halo and horn effects. Um, help. A, a halo effect is when uh, a stock is over, overvalued more than its intrinsic, its intrinsic value because of who the managers are or what they say or how they behave or what product the company uh, produces. Uh, and a horn affects the opposite. That's where the price is below uh, the, the, rational, the rational value, the value that somebody like Graham would put, uh, would put on the stock because okay. of who the managers are, what the managers say, what the managers do, um, and instead of looking at the fundamentals of the of the company, so a yeah. Friedman fund would sh would short the halo effect companies and buy the horn effect uh, companies, yeah. and that would help the financial system and the economy run more efficiently by driving prices um, in both directions towards their rational or efficient values. Yeah, that makes sense to me. While making a profit doing it. Yeah, so so can we talk about this as well? Like fundamentally, why is making a profit beneficial for not only the people who own the company or the shareholders, but the rest of society and that trickle effect? Well, I, I have a biography coming out in August about a woman named Wilma Sauce. Uh, who was a corporate gadfly in 20th century America. So she was one of these people who would show up at, um, 
annual stockholder meetings and tell the directors what they were doing wrong, which was paying themselves too much and too many perks, um, not having enough women on the board and so on and so forth, and basically taking money away from um, stockholders. And she pointed out that uh, investing in corporations is a voluntary act. People are not do it's it's not a charity, right? Uh, mm -hmm. On the one hand, they they do it because they expect something in return in the future. So if you um, you can't expect people to invest their money in something that's not going to return to them a profit, right? Yes. Why do it otherwise? Yes. yes. Um, and so essentially, what the what the government's trying to do with the ESG. Um, the ESG system is drive investors into buying uh, the shares of corporations that the government likes and away from corporations that the government doesn't like. Uh, but as long as there's still uh, a free market in you know, stocks and bonds and other financial instruments, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to actually affect anything lasting. That they could do a very good job of screwing up the economy like they did in the 2000 aughts when they drove, when the government drove so much investment into uh, housing and into mortgages. They could certainly mess things up, but they can't yes. make things better. Things are best when, not perfect, but, but best when, when people uh, decide for themselves where their investment should go. And they'll sit down, they'll make rational decisions about which ones uh, are, uh, are, are on the security market line that provide adequate return for the risk being, being assumed. And they'll, they'll, they'll issue, you know, issue the others. So also, I'd just like to touch back on, you, you spoke about fossil fuels and divesting from fossil fuels seems to be you know, what the governments are, are looking at. Can you speak to that a little bit in terms of ESG? Yeah, well, they they don't feel as though they can just outright ban it, so they're they're shadow banning it, so to speak, by not um, giving leases uh, so that uh, oil and and other fossil fuels can be extracted from um, federally owned lands, and they're trying to drive investors away from you know. Uh, um, your, your oil giants and your other, um, your other uh, fossil fuel-driven right. industries, and they want to uh, drive investment into things like solar panels and windmills, uh, even though those, especially the windmills, have been shown to, to have serious uh, negative environmental uh, effects. Yeah. Um, besides just ki killing birds and being eyesores and... Yes. Um, and the noise pollution, um, there's also the issue of those blades wearing out. And now, I mean, the wind industry has been big enough in the United States for long enough that um, some of the first ones in are wearing out. They have to be replaced. Wow. And nobody knows what to do with the old blades. Yeah. So they're just burying them. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you have municipalities that are worried about plastic cups. Right. You know how big these blades are? They're like longer than 18-wheeler trucks. They're enormous. Have you, there's have, millions of them at this point, and they're going to wear out. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really crazy. I mean, none of it is, is 
really rational if you look at it through that lens. But I think a way of looking at it um, and, and figuring out uh, the rationale behind it, um, I'm wondering here, like if we actually try and, and find a rational reason why governments would want to divest from fossil fuels and want to go more woke and do these kinds of things, it would be that maybe there's just a lot of money to be made in carbon markets. That's, that's possible, yeah. Uh, it's also, po you know, that they're um, engaged in insider, insider dealings. We know that that's a huge issue in uh, Congress and that there were very large subsidies given to um, companies like Solyndra that ended up going bankrupt, but that people made millions of uh, dollars uh, off from. Uh, we know that uh, some people in Congress, like Nancy Pelosi, are active yes. stock traders, and yes. they know what laws are going to pass and which aren't, and they trade accordingly. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's it's and it's a classic, you know, sort of public uh, choice problem in, in, in economics that you have uh, leaders who are making decisions that are in their best interest rather than the best interest of uh, society. And some of them just seem power hungry. I don't know if you've heard, but we had a Ministry of Truth for several weeks here in the United States. I did. That, yeah, have you heard that it was it was shuttered essentially? Today, I believe, yeah. Yes, yeah, which is good news, but uh, why was that thing started in the first place? I mean, what, there, there was no apparent profit to be made off from, off from that, right? Because it was a, a government um, bureaucracy within a larger bureaucracy sort of thing. Um, they just seemed to think that they could get away with it. So, you know, that makes me think that at least some of our leaders are just are just power happy or, or power drunk or wh whatever you call it, um, yeah. that they think they can do whatever they want. Um, yeah. But uh, apparently, apparently not everything, not yet anyway. Yeah, you still have some good checks and balances and the United States uh, has the most robust system for that, I, I believe, in the world. Still, yeah, though it's eroded, mm -hmm. um, but relatively speaking, and, uh, you know, of course, a year ago, I would have said Canada as well, but uh, we, we all know what happened in February. And mm -hmm. All right, so I just want to pull this up from the text that you have written, which I, I will guide our viewers to go to at AIR.org because it's a fantastic text. You have some books coming out and you're writing prolifically. So I encourage people to follow Robert Wright at AIER. And in the meanwhile, here is the quote that I thought basically sums up the whole thing. When, exec when executives and board members earn big salaries but own little stock, they have strong incentives to downplay the importance of share prices while catering to tiny but vociferous and even vicious progressive cabals. If incentives cannot be better aligned between management and stockholders from within, then somebody from the outside, like Larry the Liquidator, Musk the Magician, or Friedman Funds, must step in so that the economy doesn't suffer the large costs associated with underutilized assets. Gosh, I wish I could talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I wish I could write like that. That was very well said. So there we go. We have a great... A great sharing here. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything else that you'd like to add to that before we uh, before we wrap up this episode of Liberty Curious? No, I don't think so. I think we we covered all the all the main points and then some. 
Okay, well, that's great. So I hope that uh, you'll be on again soon to discuss some of your new writings as well as your books will be coming out as well. Oh, I sure hope so. Great. Thanks so much, Robert. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.